Well, good morning. Man, I leave. I go to the Grand Canyon for like four days, and, and then I greet you all, and nobody wants to even say hi. I see how it is. Uh, but anyway, good morning. Uh, if you're new to Christ Bible Church or if you're joining us online and watching, my name's Randy. I'm one of the elders and pastors here at uh, CBC. We're uh, so excited that we get to have this opportunity to dive into God's Word uh, this morning as His gathered uh, covenant people. And so if you'll open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we will be going through verses 1 through 10. Uh, if you're new, also, there is uh, scripture journals. We don't hand out anything to take notes uh, during, the, during the sermon because we give out uh, books of the Bible for every book that we preach through that has uh, the text of scripture on one side, open page on the other, uh, so that you can take notes and have the collection as a whole at the end of uh, our time through each book in the Bible. So feel free to get up and grab one of those if you need one. But let's read uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, together this morning. This is the word of the Lord. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is effective. Lord, that it, it cuts into our minds, into our hearts, indeed even our souls, and exposes them to the richness of who you are. And so, Father, as we spend time thinking about your words here in the book of Ephesians, as we look at what it means to be a man of this world versus a man of your world, a natural man, or a man of grace, Lord, we pray that your word would be stirring in our hearts and our minds to draw us, not out of dependence on ourselves, but Lord, instead, into dependence on you. Lord, we pray for uh, individuals in this room even who may not know you or have confessed you as Lord, that as your word is preached this morning, that their hearts would awaken to the truth that you have saved them by grace and grace alone. We ask that you would do this in our midst this morning. Amen. It is what it is. An old expression you've probably heard or uttered many times when you shrug your shoulders, throw up your hands, and know there's nothing you can do to change a situation. As Paul has now transitioned in the beginning of chapter 2, he is saying to these people, it is what it is. This is the natural state of man. Verse 1, dead. Not the most encouraging words, 
but he's trying to help us understand something this morning. The natural state of man apart from God is despair and hopelessness. It is what it is. And so unless the people of Ephesus, unless we today here in the 21st century in Peoria understand this, the power of God in the lives of believers, the power of the good news of what it means that Christ has rose from the dead and has indeed resurrected uh, his people himself is missed. Last week we talked about Christ being risen from the dead, how he's seated at the right hand. And now Paul is here saying, where were you, church of Ephesus? When Christ was raised from the dead, what was your state? You were dead. Paul's going to say, though, as we continue through this section in chapter 2, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead has also given believers new life and raised them from the dead. But apart from that power and apart from the work of God, you are hopeless. It simply is what it is. Humans are in a state of helplessness, and so he starts with those first few words, you were dead. Don't believe, Paul, that the state, the natural state of mankind is death. Look at our world. Everywhere in our society or other societies that removes God from the equation and leaves things to the natural state of things, the wisdom of man or man's best discretion, what happens? Not flourishing, destruction. Socialism and Marxism is probably the greatest example of this. What should be an utterly utopian society, everybody gets along, we share all of our things, we're so happy, we high-five in the streets, we all got more than what we need, has been proven time and time again. That even if you try to have everybody make the same amount of money, work the same amount of hours, have the same lifestyle, it is an utter fantasy because the natural man is corrupt, their natural state is destruction, not order. They are dead. And so Paul here in these 10 verses wants to show us the depths of despair regarding the outlook of the natural man, the outlook of mankind, and compare that with the heights of hope found in the work of God or in the man of grace. Paul's going to compare the man of nature with the man of grace. And what do we see about this man of nature in verses 1 to 3? Three things. One, he is dead. Two, he's enslaved. Three, he is condemned. He's dead, he's enslaved, he's condemned. What do we mean by this? Well, in verse 1, Paul says, You are dead in your trespasses and sin. The natural state of man, first and foremost, apart from God, is to be dead because of their sins. Sins that have corrupted mankind since the very first days of creation when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled in the garden. Ever since then, man's destiny is to be born, yet be dead. That's the natural state of things. Because of sins and what they've done and how they've corrupted us, we are all guilty before God, and the result is a whole human race that is alive and yet spiritually dead. A civilization that's unable to perceive the will of God or follow his commands. The human race has become dead because of the corrupting work in the garden of our first parents. James executes this nicely in James 1.15, a verse some of you may be familiar with, talking about the progression of sin, desire, when it gives, when it gives uh, desire when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth 
death. What do we see in the garden? Desire, sin, death. All of mankind condemned forever as a result. This death means that rather than walking in the ways of God, the natural state of mankind is to be enslaved, walking to the patterns of this world, unable to walk in the ways of God. How can man be enslaved, though, we might ask? How can a man be enslaved even though they're free to make choices and free to live? What do we really mean by this? What we mean when we say mankind, the natural man, apart from God, is enslaved, what Scripture begins to teach us is that because of sin, our lives are not directed by God, but our minds are held captive by another force. Our mind has been so distorted and misunderstood uh, and caused to misunderstand things by sin that it produces the life that sin desires, not the life that God desires. Men, mankind, men and women, are enslaved because of sin and trespasses. Paul notes here in verse 2 and 3, three ways that this enslavement happens. It's important for us to understand. Following the course of this world is the first way. Following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, the second way, and third, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, to the course of the world, to the spirit of the air, and to our own flesh. And so what's he mean you're enslaved to the course of this world? Well, the Greek phrase here actually uh, should be brought out maybe more literally according to the age of this world. And it brings together concepts, meaning these are the patterns or the normative operating things in this current age. This is how this age period of time functions. And it functions under the influence and the dominion of evil. The world and as a society entirely has been so corrupted uh, because it's been organized in accordance not with the power of God, but the powers of evil. Society works against God because of the corrupting nature of sin. And so the result here is Paul saying, you were operating prior to becoming in Christ as slaves into a society that you were born into, a society that hates God and refuses his commandments. John Stott in his work in Ephesians 2 says it this way, whenever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression, bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular, which repudiates God, amoral, repudiating absolutes or materialistic, glorifying the consumer market by poverty, hunger, unemployment, there we can detect the subhuman values of this age and this world. Its influence is pervasive. What we see, people that tend not to have a mind of their own, but tend to surrender to the pop culture and television and the magazines. It's cultural bondage. One primary example of this that, I, that just yells at me even this last week uh, is in some of these political races going on. There's a certain person running for governor uh, in, um, in uh, not in Atlanta, in Georgia, who claimed this last week that hearing a heartbeat at six weeks old when you do an ultrasound is just a fancy computer-generated things that babies don't have hearts at six, six weeks. Those of us who know anything about uh, science and have heard babies' hearts beat at six weeks when you go for ultrasounds and things like that, we grab our heads and we start to tear our hair out and say, like, are, are you insane? Like, this isn't even, like, a, a, like, we're not even arguing about abortion or not abortion. This is just, like, a basic scientific fact, and yet they can't understand this. And so we might be screaming and yelling as we who want to defend the right to life of all people uh, struggle with this 
But as I sat and reflected, like, how, how can somebody just deny something that's just so blatantly obvious? Like, it shouldn't even be uh, up for debate, and yet here it is being circulated in national media. Well, why? Because our culture puts people under bondage. There's a blindness and there's a death because of the influence of evil in the world on what should be very clear understandings of things. And so what we who look out at the world say, like, doesn't this just make sense? Like, this is a life. It should be protected. They're like, ah, you know, maybe not, maybe it is. And we just shrug and we say, how can we think this? Well, we step back and we see Ephesians 2 tells us exactly how. These people are enslaved to the world. They're in captivity. They can't think clear. They can't understand basic facts well because of the pervasiveness of sin and how it has distorted the world and even their own lives. The result of all of this is a bunch of people, not just in America, across the world, who have lived in captivity, who have become enslaved to a society while living with the belief that they're actually free. But it couldn't be further from the truth. This should, in my opinion, cause those of us who have been freed from captivity in Christ to have compassion on them. And I must confess that often when I see people that I disagree with that deny basic facts of science, not even, I don't even have to say biblical worldview, basic facts like a baby's heart is beating at six weeks in the womb, that I shouldn't respond with anger, with hatred, which is my default position. And I want to fight for these people. Instead, this week I was convicted. We should have compassion because these are people who are enslaved in the world. And I shouldn't root for their destruction. I should root for their freedom, that they might come to see Jesus and be free from the bondage that they're in. But the enslavement, as Paul notes, isn't just to the course of this world, to cultural influences. It is also to the devil. As he goes on and says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is a huge reminder of why our own power will never be sufficient enough to break us free from the bondage. Because of sins, humans not only walk in a form of bondage to a sinful society, but there also is a spirit at work within them, an evil spirit that has corrupted them. Satan and all the sources of evil that are traced to him inspires those who have been corrupted by sin and have not been saved, not with an inclination towards righteousness, but towards evil. This man prowls like a lion. He's a murderer. And his work, contrary to the work of God, is to inspire people to commit evil. And those who are not of God, but rather are enslaved under the corruption of sin, as a result, are the sons of disobedience who walk and operate according to the spirit of Satan. The work in the Greek here that, used, that is used to describe work, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, is the same word that we used back in uh, last week as we looked at verse 120 that is the work of God that raised Christ from the dead. There is a work of God that brings life, and Paul is saying there is a work of the devil that destroys life. God brings life, Satan brings death. And because of sin, all people have been put under this power and are struggling and are, in fact, dead. So the final result is that we're enslaved to the world, to the powers of darkness, but also to our own sinful desires. 
the passions of the flesh. Because of sin and the trespasses that we uh, have committed as a society of spiritual powers and even our own desires are all corrupted. We are men and women whose emotions and desires lead them. The natural man is a man who's in bondage to sin because we continue and they continue to believe that there's something that they can do that will provide for them what only God can. It creates a person who is uh, in bondage to their own self-satisfaction and self-promotion. They're not free to live as they ought to. They're trapped into chasing what they will never get, chasing after peace and purpose through the things of this world. And the result of all of this is the natural man who is dead, who's enslaved, is also condemned. And so Paul finishes, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What this phrase means, what's it mean to be a child of wrath? It means those whose destiny is destruction. Because of sin and transgression, because of the spirit of disobedience that is within all of mankind, the destiny of all people apart from God is to be a child of wrath or is to be destined for destruction. How is this fair? How is God's wrath a good thing? Many argue. Well, we have to take a step back and say God is perfect. No imperfection will be allowed in his sight. God's wrath should be understood to be his personal, righteous, constant hostility towards evil, which he refuses to compromise with and instead is resolved to condemn. Because of Adam, the destiny of all apart from God's intervention is to be condemned, to fall under his judgment and his wrath. It's the state of the natural man. And it should be no surprise to us as we look around the natural world and we see people clamoring to fashion themselves as something different than dead. They want to feel liberated, but they are slaves. They want to feel meaning, purpose, transcendence, but the things they pursue in all of their searches turn out to be nothing but superficial and temporary remedies for an underlying conviction, uh, condition that they are helpless to heal. Simply put, dead people can't save themselves. So their pursuits, while they might give them temporary satisfaction, often lead to the natural man finding greater levels of despair because they look for hope where it cannot be found. Their natural state is death. Verse 1 through 3 is terrible, horrible, bad news. And if Paul ended here, we would just leave as we would see the state of man with utter hopelessness, struggling, wondering what is next, what is the point of life, why do I even live, why do I even try, it's hopeless. For those of us who watch football, it's like watching the Arizona Cardinals play defense this year, right? The minute the quarterback and the other team snaps the ball, you just say, it's over, they're scoring a touchdown. Uh, This would be the state of things. The natural man's destiny is destruction. He is dead. He's helpless. But if we are going to understand the nature of salvation that Paul is going to point to here in verses 4 through 10, the nature of Christ's works, we have to sit and say, we have to first understand that the state of the natural man apart from God is death. It is what it is. They're hopeless. There's nothing they can do to change themselves. A dead person can't resuscitate themselves. A slave can't free themselves. A condemned man can't uncondemn himself. 
But then we turn to verse 4. But God. The contrast here is incredible. Think about it. Verse 3. You were, by nature, children of wrath. But God, now you are something new, different, because of his mercy, out of his great love with which he loved us. Paul, in these verses, doesn't even blink as he moves from God's wrath to God's mercy, because he knows they are all held together in God's character. And as we make this transition ourselves this morning, we should be reminded as we hear it to have a sense of gratitude for God's wrath, because it means that God always responds to evil, to sin, to transgression in the same unchanging, predictable, and uncompromising way. We are reminded in these words from Paul that only a great unchanging God has the unstoppable remedy for a disease that all of mankind needs to be healed from. And so Paul has transitioned from the hopeless state of man apart from God to the state of a man changed by God. But God, he says, the same power that raised Christ from the dead also brings change in a man. There is no longer a natural man, but a new man, a man of grace. Who is this person? They are not dead, but alive. No longer slaves, but raised up. No longer condemned, but seated in heaven, enjoying the blessings of God rather than the weight of his judgment. What a tremendous change in fortune. What a transformation in destiny. But the focus of these verses is not on man, but on God. And Paul's main point in this entire section is that you could do nothing to change yourself, but God has changed it for you. What has God done? God has done what man could not. Man could not change their helpless state, but God intervened. He displayed mercy and kindness, love towards his people by sending his son to resurrect his creation that they might have life through, the, through his son, Jesus. This love that he displays towards his creation, towards the man of grace, men and women who come to know God and profess faith in Christ, is not towards the innocent. God expresses his love to those who were disobedient, Paul says, who were by nature followed the ways of the world and of Satan. Elsewhere in Romans 5.8, Paul says it this way, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's just finished talking about how all of mankind were children of wrath. Their destiny was destruction. They were sons of disobedience. But God had love for them even while they hated God. And even though they lived according to their own even though they lived according to their own passions, even though they were enslaved to this world, he acted on their behalf. He worked to change those who were his enemies into those who would enjoy his favor and blessings because of his love for us. And so when we see in these verses that God did not need to save us, he did not have to save us, that we didn't do anything to deserve God saving us, and in fact, we didn't even ask to be saved, and yet God acted in order to save us. Our response is a man of grace to say, God, you are amazing. We're full of joy and happiness, of thanksgiving, of praise, because God has done a great thing. 
How do we know this is really all about God and not just this new man? Well, the whole section hangs on those repeated words in 5 and 8. By grace you have been saved. Some of the greatest words in all of Scripture. God saves apart from any input man might give. Last week, I was talking to a member of our church who has a friend that I've met at a couple different cookouts that I've gone to uh, over at their house. And I'd asked if he'd ever come to church with him yet because I've seen uh, his uh, other family members here. And he said, well, I talked to him and I asked him about coming to church, but his response was, if I walk into that building, I will light on fire. All right, And if we're honest, there's many people that have this same attitude who know their own sinful state is so opposed to the things of God that they're fearful that just walking into a church will bring some kind of tremendous judgment on them. They see themselves as, I'm not as good as you, and I'm, I'm a terrible, wicked, evil person. Right? Toby from The Office, if, you ever, if you're a fan of The Office and watch sitcoms, uh, exemplifies this great. Jim and Pam are getting their baby christened, and the whole episode, he stands outside on the steps of the church like trying to build the courage to walk into the church, but he just can't do it. He sees himself as too wicked, too evil, whatever. He can't enter the church. There are so many people in our society that have this same attitude. They just think there's no way God could love me. I've done too much. I'm just too evil. I've messed up too many times. But what these people and these attitudes reveal is they don't understand that every single one of us in this room is that same evil, wicked, horrible, no good person apart from God. We all deserve God's wrath. We all feel the weight of the separation of God because of sin and know that we cannot approach him apart from his own intervention. And so Ephesians this morning reminds us that we don't need to worry if we've done enough. That at the end of our life, if we have to cross our fingers and, and say a couple you know, quick prayers and think, man, I hope I did enough good to outweigh the bad. The answer is you didn't. You blew it. Like the bad significantly outweighs the good in your life. But that is a good answer because what it drives us to is the resounding truth here in Ephesians 2 that if you believe in Christ and you've set your faith in him, you don't need to worry if you've ever done enough. Christ has done it for you. It's a beautiful truth. And we should pause as we continue this morning and ask ourselves, do we feel the unconditional love of God towards us? Do you see his goodness and grace in the fact that he has saved you and set his love upon you? It changes us from being people full of pride instead to a person that is full of thanksgiving and joy. It changes the way we respond to people. It indeed changes our entire trajectory in life. But God's done more than just resurrect, as Paul notes, uh, points out here. His power is more than just bringing the dead to life. God has also done something great. He also exalts. What does it mean to be a Christian, we might ask, to be a part of the kingdom of God? Many of you and other people would answer uh, many different things, that it means that they trust in Jesus with their life, that they admire and worship Jesus, that they agree with the teachings of Scripture and of the church, that they live by certain moral standards. And all of this is true. A changed person does adopt the change that God wants for them in their lives, but that is not what makes them a Christian. 
What makes a Christian distinctively different from all of the rest of the world, what makes somebody a person of grace rather than a natural person who is a person whose destiny is wrath, is they are in Christ. He has set his love upon them. They are a new creation. They are no longer in captivity, but they have been enthroned in heaven. Think about that. When God works and we respond in faith to the good news that Jesus died for our sins in order to save us, we are now in him. We belong to him. We've been pulled from the citizenship of this world that has literally corrupted us, that has enslaved us, and instead been given a citizenship in heaven. The natural man, dead, enslaved, but that's not the person of grace. They are alive and they are enthroned. They are not the one who is captive, but the one who is in Christ, having not their own power, but the power of Christ in their lives. Because we are in Christ, Paul says we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. Because our sin has been pardoned, because the power of sin is annulled, we continue as God's own children with the right to the heavenly thrones next to his son. But this heavenly seating is not for some future day. Paul uses the past tense here in verse 6 to say God has already raised them. It's something that's already happened. How can this be? All of us are sitting here like, I'm not in heaven. Looking, maybe looking at the person next to you like, are you in heaven? I'm not in heaven. Uh, and, and we're asking us these questions. How can we already be seated in heaven? Like clearly we're not. We wait heaven. We hope in heaven. I sure hope this isn't heaven. Uh, Right? And so we ask this, how can it be? How can Paul say you are already seated in heaven when we see so fundamentally in all of the corruption in life that we are not? The answer is that although glory is ahead for the living, their enthronement is already accomplished. All of God's children already have the status of the Son, and this should be a tremendous encouragement as we face struggles in our life. We have power over our struggles, not because we actually have power, because God has enthroned us and given us the authority and power of his son. The struggles that we had yesterday, the temptations, the bondage, the pain can all be met and overcome because we have not our power, but the power of the risen Christ in us. Tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. He has seated us in heaven Why did God do it then? Why did God act in this way? Was it because we deserved it? We've already answered that with a resounding no. But God acted out of sheer mercy, love, grace, and kindness in order to display his grace. Verse 7, he saved us in order that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In raising and exalting Christ in chapter 1, he had demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of his power. But now here in chapter 2, he is demonstrating by raising and exalting his people who were destined for destruction, but he seated them in heaven, the immeasurable riches of his grace. He will continue to do so throughout eternity. The natural state of man has been stuck, enslaved, dead. But the man of grace will be a display to all of those corpses walking around that there is something greater out there. To the ones who are enslaved to the world, to the powers of devil, to selfish desires, the man of grace is a testimony that there is one who has more power, one who has more ability, who has more grace, 
and has kindness, mercy, and love. A man who has been redeemed by God declares freedom to the world. And indeed, it is our purpose to bring God glory. We see this, Isaiah uh, 43. But now, says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, you are mine. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. God saved us so that everybody in the whole world might see those who he saved and say, that God is amazing. He brings dead people to life. He brings freedom to the captives. So what does this mean to us as we begin to wind down this morning? One, it means that we are called to be Christ-emulating. What are we now? Paul has said we are God's workmanship, his work of art, his masterpiece that was created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are a masterpiece that God has painted so that we might emulate the master. We have been created for good works to walk according to the wisdom and the counsel of God. We've been delivered from death that we might no longer walk in the ways of death. We are no longer sons of disobedient disobedience, but sons and daughters of God most high. When someone sees us, they should see Christ. And so we should ask ourselves this morning, when someone does see your life, what do they see? Do they see a natural man who's been cleaned up, got a nice shine on, fancy suit maybe, but inside they're still corrupt and that corruption comes out? Or do they see the man of grace that's been transformed by the wonderful and amazing God? The second thing this passage means for us and applies to us it means that we should be Christ-exalting. We don't deserve credit for saving ourselves. John Stott, who I mentioned earlier, a wonderful Anglican pastor from the 20th century, said it this way, and I love it because he mentions peacocks, and peacocks have a special place in my heart because of Saguaro Ranch Park. Uh, those of you guys who grew up in, here in Phoenix, a park that there's just random peacocks running around for whatever reason. Uh, he says this, Salvation is God's gift, lest any man should boast. We, should not, we will not be able to strut around heaven like peacocks. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ and the praises of God. There will indeed be display in heaven, not self-display, however, but rather a display of the incomparable wealth of God's grace, mercy, kindness through Jesus Christ. The same should be said for our life here on earth. We are not to display our own moral superiority or goodness. We have been brought from death to life in order to display the wonderful goodness, mercy, kindness, love, and power of God. My ESV Bible sums up this whole section, uh, the study Bible, very, very uh, nicely, I thought. I laughed when I read it. Salvation is not of works. If it were, then those who were saved would get the glory. It's a great summation and a great question for us to ask. We should be Christ-exalting, but who gets the praise in your life? Who gets the praise when people see you doing good, when somebody sees you succeeding? Is it yourself or is it others? And finally, number three, it means we should be Christ-evangelizing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. As God's people... We need to bring that message into the world, which is dead, enslaved, and condemned 
because of their separation from God. The ones who fear that they're going to start on fire if they walk into a church building, who know there's no hope for them, need to hear that by grace they have been saved. We need to bring the message of God's grace to a world so that they might experience his redemption, that they might have eternal life, not based on their own merit, but based on the blood-purchasing life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we should ask, what does our action towards those who are sinners really demonstrate about what we believe about God's saving work by grace alone? If we don't care about them, if we don't want to evangelize to them, if we even might expect them to change before they're worthy of hearing God's grace or God's salvation, uh, we might be misunderstanding God and thinking that we've somehow done something to deserve God's grace. No, in fact, we should go to those who are most destitute and hurting and bring them the good news that God wants to redeem them from the pits of despair wherever they are at. A month ago, uh, David Hogg preached on Psalm 23, and he asked at the end of his sermon, if God answered your prayers, who would be saved? This is a gut punch of a question because I imagine, based off of my own life and periods and struggles that I've had in this area, that if God did answer prayers of our church, not that many people would be saved. We love to pray for ourselves, for our friends, for our kids, but as we pray, as I pray, I say this personally, there is not a huge heart in people that I am actively praying for salvation. I don't know that many people who aren't Christians. That is contrary to the call of God. We should be people who are Christ evangelizing. We have heard of the only antidote to that which plagues all of mankind. It's Christ and his work, and yet we sit on it and twiddle our thumbs and go about our business. We should be people who are motivated to evangelize, whose prayer lives, if God answered, would see a total revolution here in Phoenix. But could you imagine if all of a sudden all of Phoenix became Christian, what that would look like in our crazy world? People wouldn't know what to do. But yet we don't pray like that. We don't pray that God might change a, an entire generation. We don't even have specific people often that we pray for. This week, maybe one thing you need to do as you leave here is write the name of one person in permanent marker on your windshield. So every time you get in your car, you see it. Maybe not like right in front of it, but like off to the corner. You can't erase it. And you're going to pray and you're going to pray and you're going to pray every time you get in a car for that person that they might hear God and come from death to life. Finally, this morning as we finish, we have to confront the fact that we can't do anything on our own power. And if you have been coming to church or attending church your first time here this morning, through your own power, you've been trying to do what only God can do. You've been trying to be good. You've been trying to be a better person. You've been trying to find peace and hope and happiness, purpose apart from God. You need this morning to say, God, I can't do it. I need you. Turn to God in faith and accept the good news that Christ has died for your sins and he has risen so that you might also be brought from death to life. And if you're a Christian and you've been lying and convincing yourself that somehow you were pretty good before Jesus, stop it. Repent. We only come to God because in grace God came to us first. Don't puff out your chest, fall on your knees, and say, thank you, Lord, for we have been saved by grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that truth, the truth that you have 
work to do what we could not, that we have been saved by grace, not our own works, so that we could not boast. And so, Father, as your people this morning, we desire to give you the glory, to be people who point to your majesty, your goodness, who point to you and say, there is somebody out there who has sent his own son to die that I might be saved. Would you follow him? Lord, give us a heart for the lost. Give us attitudes that emulate and exalt the work of your son. Lord, give us uh, an, an ability to operate, not on our own power, but an assurance that we can do things because you have worked in us. And so, Father, we thank you for the work of Christ, that you have indeed saved us, that you've redeemed us, that you've purchased us, and that we are your people. Father, we thank you for that truth. Amen.